teens need and want adults to spend time with them and to build into their lives. To pass on advice about the business world, about life's priorities, and how God fits into it all. This is Truth Encounter, and we discovered that in old Israel God gave specific commands about how the young men were to be recognized in their community, separate from their dependence upon their mothers, and take on the responsibilities of an adult. Let's join our discussion leader Dave Wurtson as he continues our exposure to Deuteronomy chapter 22 titled, Who is My Neighbor? In old Israel, the men gathered around a 13-year-old boy and they did not dress him in women's clothes. You know what those men did? They went through a whole ceremony and those men dressed him in men's clothes in their culture and they declared that 13-year-old boy is now a son of the covenant and he is recognized among the community of men as an adult male within the community of old Israel. And he could go to a synagogue or he could go to a, a gathering of the study of God's word and if he would be recognized as one of the men in that group. I want to challenge you men. In the midst of all of this relativity, in the midst of all this stuff of doing what pleases me and just doing what makes me feel good, it's time for us to remember that in the beginning, God created them male and female. And in order for males to really become men, they need to recognize that distinction. And part of those attributes, part of those characteristics, part of those intangible, subtle things that set us apart as individuals and our sexuality need to be communicated by older men tenderly and yet strongly taking those boys under their wing. And that's what the Lord is talking about. He's saying in old Israel, we need to maintain the distinction. I want to challenge some of you men. As you see, like when you're working in Awana, when you're working in Sunday school, it's really important for you to be a man for those men that are there. Also for the little girls. Because the Lord wants his little girls to be able to respond to a man. And often in our society we have kids, there's a lot of precious little girls and little boys who have no men in their life because the men are gone. Well, we need to step into that gap and be that example, that covenant bearer, the one that's responsible to pass on the tradition. And that's why in old Israel the Lord was so concerned and he went down to just even a little area it says, men don't wear women's clothing. Women don't wear men's clothing. And I want you to see, like, I've had pastors, friends of mine, they'll use this to teach that women shouldn't wear pants and everything else. That's not what the text is about. In old Israel, nobody wore pants. They all wore kind of hang-loose robes. <laughs> but, you know, every single culture, every single culture, it can even be an Indian culture where they hardly wear anything at all. Every culture will have amulets, they'll have decorations, they'll have certain garments that are feminine and certain garments that are male. All through history, that's true. And old Israel, God says, don't mess those two things up. 
I want to say something. I want to go a little bit deeper here for a minute. I talked to you about the vulnerability. I want to talk to you about girls and fellows. You don't usually hear messages like this on Sunday morning, but this is Deuteronomy, and in our church, we try to follow what the Scripture is saying. And I want to talk to you about a very pressing era, problem in our culture that we need to be very alert to in our culture. In that vulnerable period, there's a lot of debate about what produces homosexuality. A lot of debate over it, whether it's in your genes or whether it's in your environment. One of the things that's becoming very, very clear is that the relationship, the relationship with the same sex parent is very, very strategic. One of the common factors among almost all those in an adulthood really struggle with their sexual identity especially in the problem of homosexuality, almost every one of them have problems in the same sex relationship with their parent. Let me share with you a specific how it works. Dads, if you're distant from your sons, if you're too busy, if you're always working, you never have time. You never have time for conversation. You never have time to really share your life with them. You never are a friend. You never even do the common things that even a mediocre friend would do because you're always gone. You say, well, man, I pay the bills and I put a roof over their head. I've taken care of everything. Daddies, if you don't have a relationship with your sons, then they can reach 11, 12, 13 in early adolescence in that stage I was just talking to you about where their sexual identity is very nebulous when they might not be exactly sure how they fit into the scheme of things. When if they, those little boys were dressed up like women, they would look just like a girl, and they're wondering, you know, where do I fit into the scheme of things? Daddies, if you're distant, all you need to do is bring an older man into that younger boy's life as a friend. And maybe for the first time in that little boy's life, he finally has a man who's his friend, who cares about him, who nurtures him, who's concerned about him. And in that very vulnerable period, as the hormones begin to surge, as the sexuality begins to develop, all that older man has to be is a homosexual. And he joins in that little boy's mind a legitimate love for companionship with an illegitimate, eroticized love for the same sex. And that's a very powerful union because the boy is hungry for male companionship. And if a homosexual influences that boy at that point, his sexuality can be distorted and it leads to what is permeating our culture. The same thing can happen to a little girl if she's really not close to her mom and there's really not intimacy, there's not closeness, there's not that sense of companionship, that sense of caring, all that has to happen is maybe a girl at college or maybe even an older girl in high school that come alongside and you start to experiment with sexuality the way kids will do and you're into guilt-ridden, twisted relationships. God is concerned that we develop legitimate relationships in our family, in our schools, throughout our society. 
There's a tremendous difference between men and women. I want to say one other thing. You say, Dave, why are you talking about homosexuality? Because if you argue that there is absolutely no difference between the sexes, and it doesn't make any difference what men wear and what women wear, and we're all just identically the same, you have just jettisoned any argument you can have against homosexuality. And those in the evangelical community that debated this issue when I first started listening to the debate, and they talked about that there's no difference in roles between men and women, there's no difference in the sexes, that in Christ we are all just one. And I remember thinking back then, that's going to be on a slippery sliding slope. And interesting enough, some of the major evangelical feminists, it's turned out that many of them are lesbian. And those are very strategic issues. That's why God says, in Christ, there is oneness. We are fellow heirs of the grace of life. But it doesn't jettison the physical life that we live in right now, where there is a clear man, there is a clear woman. Okay? So be very, very careful. In fact, I'd really encourage you, be careful of Mardi Gras times. There's a fascination with cross-dressing. It's a, it's a way to jettison responsibility. It's a way to get away from the kind of role that you want to play. From my own heart as a man, I'm responsible. I work. I take my salary. After you just get through working on your income tax and you've got your whole budget laid out, you begin to realize as a man, I take almost every bit of that labor and give it to this woman and my four kids. And a lot of you girls toss right in with that too. And Mary's right at my side working like that. Well, that is responsibility, isn't it? And that's what some of you are thinking about getting away from and tossing out. And I want to share with you, God is saying, don't do that. That's what makes you a man. That's what makes you a mature woman. It's taking that responsibility. And the, and the fun and the games of cross-dressing and all that, which, some take, which take place in the secular community, like Japanese men, for example, will go to clubs where they can all dress like women, and they talk about how it relaxes them. That's sick. And God says, you don't ever relax like that. You relax in, in God, and you relax in who he is. And you are very careful to maintain the natural distinctions that he's made. Why? Because you'll be free to fly the way the Lord wants you to fly. The next issue, look at verse 6. If you come across, but you never heard that on a Sunday morning before, did you? If you come across a bird's nest beside the road, either in a tree or on the ground, and the mother is sitting on the young, but you haven't heard about this either, or on the eggs, do not take the mother with the young. You may take the young, but be sure to let the mother go so that it may go well with you and you may have a long life. I say, Lord, you're going to be kidding. You mean to tell me if I'm coming along the road and there's a mother hen sitting on her eggs and that we could think of it like that to relate to our culture, why can't I just go out there and take the chicken and fry it for dinner and grab the eggs and eat them for breakfast? Who cares? And why do you tell me? If you listen to what I'm telling you, you're going to live a long life. God is saying all of creation is mine. Bible believers have been very much criticized 
for their views towards ecology, sometimes rightly so, because we can take a flippant attitude towards it. And when I share with you, and in fact, our own town is embroiled in a, in a tremendous debate, and there's, there is a great challenge. In fact, if I wanted to divide you, I just need to mention air, and you can all be divided. And what I want to do is I want to try to get underneath that, and I want you to think about some principles. What this Lord is saying is this. We are responsible as human beings to subdue the earth. We have the right to organize it, to plan it, for you to build your homes. An example of this, when Mary and I first looked at our lot here in Midlothian, it was just an empty pasture. There was nothing on it except just scraggly thorns and, you know, sandbirds is what was really there and a, and a few trees that the birds planted by their droppings. It looks a lot better now because we subdued it. We planted grass, we built a house, we planted a bunch of trees. It looks a lot better now than it did when Mary and I first started looking at it. The Lord says that's biblical, that's right. But he's also saying that our use of nature, though we need to subdue it, and technology will be involved in that, as God's children, we must always be careful not to exploit it. Now, what's this business about not wiping out the mother and the little chicks all at the same time? It only makes sense. If you kill the mother and the chicks, where do you get your next meal a few weeks later? There's no more eggs. I can make it modern for you. Uh, Kim has chickens, I think. Do you still have chickens, Kim? The coyote is gone. Well, they used to have chickens, all right? What the Lord is saying is, it would be stupid, like the illustration I just used, it would be stupid for Kim to go out, wring the necks of all of his, of all of his chickens, toss them into the deep freeze, and then eat the eggs. That's it. It only makes sense. Just go out and get the eggs as the mother's sitting in them. Just get the young. Just get the eggs and eat those. Why? Because the mother will produce more eggs. Why in the world did God include that in his word? Because it's a principle. A lumberman, friend of mine up in Maine. I'm sitting in his lumber mill. Marvelous plant. Great technology. Man, you can put a raw log in one end, spit out a finished board at the other end. I say to him, what's all this talk about the lumbermen and how they're abusing? And he said, Dave, here in Maine, in our area of the lumbermen, what we do is we selectively cut the forest. In fact, to be honest with you, I could cut for the next hundred years in a surrounding radius of about 30 miles from my plant, and I never exhaust a supply because the rain comes in Maine, produces pine trees very quick, the spruce goes up just like that, and we've got it all planned out. In fact, to be honest with you, it makes our forests in Maine even prettier because all the old junk isn't left in there. We, we cut down older trees so that younger trees can grow and we're careful to plant it out. That's what this text is talking about. A lumberman that just goes in and cuts everything down like they did in old Israel. In old Israel, the invading armies repeatedly cut all the trees down. The trees never came back until modern times. It changed the whole climate of the land. And, there were, and the lumber was gone. Once it was exploited, it was just gone. So as believers, there needs to be a delicate balance. The principle is we are responsible. God isn't, God isn't demeaning all technology. He's not saying that we shouldn't have any of the modern conveniences. That's a, how, where are you going to stop? Where are you going to go back to? You're going to go back to just Stone Age time? 
But he also says in the midst of that debate, as believers in the midst of these industries, which a lot of you have been, you need to be very concerned. A lot of you have been concerned to be sure that you're careful to be conserving and so that you're very careful that you follow God's plan in that area. And and I want to encourage you. It's a nerve-wracking, heartbreaking debate. It's hard to figure out what the government's doing half the time. And then you've got people that don't know what they're doing, given rules. You've got all kinds of debate about this. But don't jettison the principle. In other words, we need to pray for one another that we won't trash nature just to exploit it for ourselves. As God's children, we need to not respond to the ecologists who are often unbelievers, just secularists. In fact, a lot of the ecologists are worshiping nature. They're bowing down to the tree. We need to be very careful not to react to them and join another side which is just as anti-biblical. And they are hurting and they are abusing. And so there's a balance in God's Word. It's illustrated in just this little tiny principle. One last thing. It says we need, to be, we need to take proper precautions. Verse 8. It says, When you build a new house, make a parapet around your roof so that you may not bring the guilt of bloodshed on your house if someone falls from your roof. In old Israel, they would do a lot of their entertaining. They would do a lot of their eating. They would do a lot of their recreation time as a family on the top of the roof of their house. And what it's saying is you need to build a proper wall. Why do you live in a culture that's so concerned about people that fall off walls at stadiums because you still have the hangover in the United States of America that you don't just do it pleases you. None of us can just do it pleases us because there's still a sense that we're responsible. Now we can debate how much responsibility that an industry has or that a, a baseball team has, but I want you as God's children, don't jettison the principle that we're responsible for one another. And it's true, we can only take so many precautions. If somebody climbs up the wires, fence of the Empire State Building, jumps through razor blades and everything else to commit suicide, there's not much we can do. But when you go up to the top of the Empire State Building, you can't get out. It's hard to commit suicide in the Empire State Building. Why? Because of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy says when you build, you've got to make protections. You can apply that principle. One final thing. It says, don't mix your clothes, verses 9 through 12. Do not plant two kinds of seed in your vineyard. Don't, don't mix your fields. If you do, not only the crops you plant, but also the fruit of the vineyard will be defiled. Do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoke, yoke together. That won't pull very well. Do not wear clothes of wool and linen woven together. Make tassels on the four corners of your cloak you wear. And you say, Dave, what in the world does that have to do with anything? I don't know. <laughs> really don't. I don't know why the Lord wouldn't let him wear linen and wool mixed together. One of my friends said, well, obviously polyester was stinking to wear, and it sweat already, and it didn't fit with the climate. God said, don't mix it. Polyester, right there. Many different kinds of esters mixed together. That's not going to work. I don't think that's really what God was concerned about. And really, the commentators go round and round. They don't really know either. You say, well, why did God put in his word? Because... You know one of the things that you all need to get a hold of? Every culture, every culture is a culture because it has some distinctions. 
And God wanted Old Testament Israel to be a peculiar people. He was a daddy that wanted them to have a unique family life that would be following his instructions. And sometimes he just told them to do things because that's the way he wanted it to be. And what he said, he did, he says, I don't want my kids to wear linen and wool mixed together. When I go into their gardens, I want it to be like Ed Wilson's garden. I want everything to be in its order, in its place. And I don't want you to just go out there and just throw your seeds and have watermelons and, and tomatoes and, and cucumbers and okra just growing up haphazardly. I don't want you to do that. I want your fields to be very neat and orderly. He would have fit really good in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And it's just because. Under the New Covenant, you can throw your seeds anywhere you want to. But I do want you to learn the principle in your culture. I have college students saying, David, can I wear my hair down to my waist? Yes. Sure, go right ahead. If you look like a man doing it, better grow a beard too so we don't get into mixed up with the other principle. We can't tell the difference. But if you're six foot four and you, you grow a beard and you have hair down your waist, I don't know anything in the Word of God. Absalom, you know, knocked out all of Israel with his handsomeness having hair like that. But I also want to tell you something. If you go in for your, your interview at Wall Street in New York, and you wear your three-piece suit and your hair down to your waist, and you have an earring in your ear, I'm not sure that you'll get the job. And you say, well, I've got to be me. I've got to do what pleases me. That's right. And you can go ahead and do that, but you've got to realize that you live in a culture. Let me change gear a little bit. If you want to be a graphic artist... Or if you want to go down to a section of Dallas and become an artist and paint in the afternoon, which is a very legitimate profession, you probably wouldn't have any trouble with that guard I just talked about. But you need to understand that there are conventions. And one of the things that God's children learn to do is they don't just throw all that away. They don't just do what pleases them. They do what pleases the Lord. What I want to challenge you to do in every area of life, what this final principle of Deuteronomy is saying is, Sometimes in a culture, things are the way they are just because. There's an ebb and flow in that, which is why I don't think that this is very specific, concrete, detailed commands. Because we don't know. God doesn't care that much whether you mix your clothes today. But in old Israel, he did. And what I want you to be aware of, it, just show this as a principle, part of culture is that there are conventions. And one of the things that a mature wise person learns to do is not jettison the culture. One final thing. You say, Dave, why did God make them put the tassel on their garments? Numbers tells us. Numbers 15 says, I want all of my Israelite kids and every one of my Israelite men and women, every time they dress, to remember that they are a covenant people. In old Israel, he made them put four tassels on the corner of their garments. And every time they looked at that distinctive tassel, they remembered they were a child of God. And what I'd show this is that God often likes to use physical things to remind us of the internal, invisible relationship, the spiritual relationship which we have with Him. Under the new promise in Christ, God has placed His Holy Spirit in the hearts of those who receive the Son to remind us that wherever we might be or go, 
we have a relationship with a living God. He lives within, therefore, we cannot just breathe the moral atmosphere of our time and do what pleases us. We need to do what pleases Him. We need to do what will meet the needs of our brother, our sister, our neighbor. I pray the Lord will use the last couple of teachings from Deuteronomy chapter 22 to reclaim the older, more precious moral standard. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you.